Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 94, Amelia Earhart's time in Boston. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. This week, we're going to discuss Amelia Earhart's first career as a social worker in one of Boston's many settlement houses. We'll discuss her early exposure to aviation, the famed friendship crossing, and also her reflections on her career of service to newly immigrated Americans. But before we talk about Amelia Earhart, it's time to take a look at this week's Featured Historic Site and upcoming event. For our Featured Historic Site this week, we're taking you to a historic house in Watertown that we first visited this past winter. Today, the Edmund Fowle House is tucked away in a residential neighborhood off of Mount Auburn Street, not far from Watertown Square. But when it was built, it sat alone on a large rural estate. Built in 1772, it's the second oldest surviving house in Watertown. It was constructed with two and a half stories, two staircases, and six fireplaces, all of which were a testament to the wealth of Edmund Fowle Jr., who had it built. The draw at the Edmund Fowle House isn't really Edmund Fowle, though. The real reason to visit is the home's Revolutionary-era history. Before the outbreak of war, the de facto government of Massachusetts, the Provincial Congress, had been meeting in secret to avoid the royal authorities. Open hostilities began with the battles at Lexington and Concord, which both Edmund Fowle and his little brother took part in with the Watertown militia. As the subsequent siege of Boston unfolded, the Provincial Congress needed to be headquartered near the troops, and the capital of Massachusetts moved to Watertown. The Executive Council, which served as the executive branch of government in lieu of a governor, selected Edmund Fowle's house as its home base. The second floor of his home had never been completed, so it was just one large open room. In July of 1775, the House of Representatives resolved that a large chamber in the house of Mr. Fowles might be procured, but being unfinished, the committee recommended that there be a rough floor laid and chairs provided for that purpose. James Warren mentioned the house to John Adams in a letter that October, saying, Everybody either eats, drinks, or sleeps in this house, and very many do all. The committee continued to meet at Edmund Fowle's house after the British evacuation of Boston, all the way into September of 1776. The two most famous events that happened at the house occurred on back-to-back days in July of that year. On July 18, 1776, the Declaration of Independence was very famously proclaimed from the balcony of the old State House in Boston for the first time. Less famously, it was also read publicly to the citizens of Watertown, from an upstairs window at the Edmund Fowle House that same afternoon. The next day, the council entered into a treaty with the Micmac, Maliseet, and Passamaquoddy nations of Nova Scotia. Citing the Declaration's assertion that the states had full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do, the council agreed to a treaty of friendship with the three tribes. The Mi'kmaq and their allies agreed to send 600 warriors to enlist in the Continental Army. Just one day after learning that the United States of America existed, the Council were entering into a treaty in behalf of said state and the other United States of America. It was the first foreign treaty adopted by the United States. 
The Edmund Fowl House is open for guided tours from 1 to 4 p.m. on the third Sunday of each month. This Friday, August 24th, they're holding special tours for incoming freshmen at Watertown High School. So if you're not one, your next opportunity to visit will be September 16th. They also offer tours by appointment, and we'll have a link to their website and contact information in this week's show notes. The admission's $5 or $3 for seniors and kids. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring another one of the Massachusetts Historical Society's Brown Bag Lunch Talks on Friday, August 24th at noon. This one is being presented by Kristen McFarlane of Cambridge University. The other Cambridge, of course. She'll be giving a presentation called A Brazen Wall to Keep the Scripture's Certainty, European Biblical Scholarship in Early America. Dr. McFarlane is on both the history and English faculty at Trinity College, Cambridge. Her research is primarily on the history of biblical research, especially in the 16th century. She looks at how people studied the Bible, the insights they gained, and how that affected the ongoing Reformation. When Dr. McFarlane turns her attention across the Atlantic, she looks at how improvements in Hebrew and Greek translation not long before the Puritan Great Migration affected the religious life and culture of early New Englanders. Here's how the MHS describes her talk. During the 16th and 17th centuries, European scholars made significant advances in the historical and critical study of the Bible, often with highly controversial and factious results. This talk will examine how such exciting but potentially subversive European scholarship was received and transformed by its early American readers through a close study of the books owned and annotated by 17th century readers in New England and elsewhere. The event is free and open to the public. Be sure to bring a lunch to enjoy while Dr. McFarlane is presenting. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Amelia Earhart arrived in Boston in 1924 at the age of 27, having seen and experienced a great deal since her birth in Atchison, Kansas in 1897. Amelia's grandfather, Alfred Otis, served as a federal judge before becoming the president of the local bank. His accomplishments should have led to a comfortable life for his grandchildren, but her father battled alcoholism, and as a result, he failed to prosper as a country lawyer. Nevertheless, Amelia had an unconventional and somewhat privileged childhood. Her mother did not aspire to raise her daughters to be delicate flowers. She encouraged Amelia and her sister Grace to explore, adventure, and play a little rough, all while dressed in bloomers. It's worth noting that such dress was highly unusual for little girls at the time. In 1904, with the help of her uncle, she cobbled together a homemade ramp fashioned after a roller coaster she had seen on a trip to St. Louis and secured the ramp to the roof of the family tool shed. Seven-year-old Earhart's first flight ended less than ideally. She emerged from the broken wooden box that had served as a sled with a bruised lip, torn dress, and a thirst for more. She exclaimed, oh, it's just like flying. After several family moves and a combination of homeschooling and public school, Earhart graduated from Chicago's Hyde Park High School in 1916. Throughout her childhood, she had aspired to a future career, and she kept a scrapbook of newspaper clippings about successful women in predominantly male-oriented fields, including film direction and production, law, advertising, management, 
and mechanical engineering. During Christmas vacation in 1917, Earhart visited her sister in Toronto. World War I had been raging, and Earhart saw the returning wounded soldiers. After receiving training as a nurse's aide from the Red Cross, she began work with the Voluntary Aid Detachment at Spadina Military Hospital. Her duties included preparing food in the kitchen for patients with special diets and handing out prescribed medication in the hospital's dispensary. Unfortunately, this work had grave health consequences. When the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic reached Toronto, Earhart was engaged in arduous nursing duties that included night shifts at the Spadina Military Hospital. She was soon suffering from pneumonia and maxillary sinusitis. She was hospitalized in early November of 1918 and discharged in December, about two months after the illness had started. Her sinus-related symptoms were pain and pressure around one eye and copious mucus drainage via the nostrils and throat. While staying in the hospital during the pre-antibiotic era, she had painful minor operations to wash out the affected maxillary sinus. But these procedures were not successful, and Earhart subsequently suffered from worsening headaches. Her convalescence lasted nearly a year. Chronic sinusitis significantly affected Earhart's flying activities in later life, and sometimes even on the airfield, where she was forced to wear a bandage on her cheek to cover a small drainage tube. But she was one of the lucky ones. Tune in next week for our episode marking the 100-year anniversary of the Spanish flu outbreak. Around the world, influenza killed almost 100 million people in 1918. The Spanish flu isn't the only formative experience Amelia had in Toronto. She and a friend visited an airfield in conjunction with the Canadian National Exhibition. One of the highlights of that day was a flying exhibition put on by a World War I ace. While in flight, the pilot spotted Earhart and her friend, who were watching from an isolated clearing, and dived at them. In her book Last Flight, she describes the experience. I am sure he said to himself, watch me make them scamper. She stood her ground as the aircraft came close. I did not understand it at the time, she said, but I believe that that little red airplane said something to me as it swished by. By 1919, Earhart prepared to enter Smith College, but changed her mind and enrolled at Columbia University in a course in medical studies, among other programs. Unfortunately, she quit a year later to be with her parents in California. In Long Beach, on December 28, 1920, Earhart and her father visited an airfield where Amelia took a flight that changed the trajectory of her life. By the time I had got to two or three hundred feet off the ground, she said, I knew I had to fly, and after that ten-minute flight, she was determined to learn how. Working at a variety of jobs, including photographer, truck driver, and stenographer at the local telephone company, she managed to save $1,000 for flying lessons. Earhart had her first lesson on January 3, 1921 at Kenner Field near Long Beach. Her teacher was Anita Netta Snook, a pioneer female aviator who used a surplus Curtis JN-4 Canuck for training. In order to reach the airfield, Earhart had to take a bus to the end of the line, then walk four miles. But she was in the best hands. Snook was the first woman aviator in Iowa, 
the first woman student accepted at the Curtis Flying School in Virginia, first woman aviator to run her own aviation business, and first woman to run a commercial airfield. Amelia went all in. Aware that other aviators would be judging her, she slept in her new leather jacket for three nights to give it a worn look. She also cropped her hair short in the style of other female flyers. Six months later, she purchased a second-hand, bright yellow Kenner Airster biplane that she nicknamed the Canary. On October 22, 1922, about a year and a half after her first lesson, Earhart flew the Airster to an altitude of 14,000 feet, setting a world record for female pilots. On May 15, 1923, Earhart became the 16th woman in the United States to be issued a pilot's license. Unfortunately, Following a disastrous investment in a failed gypsum mine, Earhart's inheritance from her grandmother, which was now administered by her mother, dried up. Consequently, she had to sell the canary. She purchased a slightly more practical mode of transit, a yellow Kissel Speedster two-passenger sports car, which she named the Yellow Peril. Following her parents' divorce in 1924, she drove her mother in the Yellow Peril on a transcontinental trip from California that brought them to Boston, where Earhart underwent yet another sinus operation to address her chronic issues. After recuperation, she returned to Columbia University for several months, but was forced to abandon her studies because her mother could no longer afford the tuition fees. Soon after, she found employment first as a teacher, then as a social worker in 1925 at Denison House, a Boston settlement house. You may recall mentions of settlement houses in our past episodes. As a refresher, settlement houses originated in London in the late 19th century as a new model for charity. Typically staffed by college students, settlement houses engaged young men and women who had access to education and resources as teachers, social workers, and essentially early social justice advocates. They lived in the houses located in low-income, often immigrant neighborhoods, and worked with residents rather than for them. As modeled by United South End Settlements, which is still operating in the South End today, the premise was to bring together people from different backgrounds in a diverse, inclusive setting to equip children and families with the education and tools needed to achieve economic stability. A book published by the South End House in 1899 opens with a very logical reason for providing opportunities to those not born to fortune. The laws which govern the birth of genius are inscrutable. Since the manual labor classes are four or five times as numerous as all other classes put together, it is not unlikely that more than half of the best natural genius that is born in the country belongs to them. And of this, a great part is fruitless for want of opportunity. The author goes on to explain the gap in service between the most impoverished residents and those with a high degree of wealth. Of late years in Boston, large additions have been made to the resources of our great educational institutions. Some of the older charitable foundations have also been much increased. In the meantime, however, certain new undertakings combining the motives both of education and charity have arisen under the urgency of a situation which has been gradually coming to light. The vast majority of the population of Boston is made up of working people. It is found that about 10% of those, 
a submerged tenth, are affected by charitable agencies. Popular educational institutions, aside from the public schools, probably also touch about 10%, an aristocracy of labor. But what of the 80%, more or less, who are not thus accessible either through their necessities on the one hand or their ambitions on the other? On account of deep-seated industrial, racial, and religious prejudices, this great middle class of labor is influenced hardly at all by the older forms of philanthropic effort. So far as Boston is concerned, the newly devised line of action was first fully expressed in the founding of the South End House, a university settlement. At this house, it has been convincingly shown that by simple, friendly fellowship, it is possible to penetrate into the thick of the 80%, among whom are critical industrial and municipal difficulties center in whose conditions of life are found many of the provoking causes of pauperism and crime, who possess among them a large share of the best innate gifts of mind and heart. The established efforts of education and charity must, of course, not be one which relaxed. They ought to be more strongly reinforced. Yet the fact remains that there is a vast and imminent problem which is almost wholly out of their range. This is the problem with which the South End House for the past seven years has specifically concerned itself. While the South End House was the first settlement house in Boston, opening as Andover House on January 1, 1892, many others sprang up quickly, including Denison House later the same year. Denison House was donated by Cornelia Lyman Warren as one of the earliest branches of the College Settlements Association. The CSA had been founded in 1887 by a small group of Wellesley College faculty and alumna, including labor organizer Vita Scudder and noted pacifist and Nobel Prize winner Emily Green Balsh. Denison House was modeled after Jane Addams' Hull House in Chicago. Its mission was to provide Boston's poor with social services and education, not only for philanthropic purposes, but to break down class barriers. The women hoped that bringing people of different backgrounds together under one roof would further the purpose of democracy, which they defined as a free-flowing life between group and group. A recent Boston Globe magazine article describes the political climate that the settlements responded to. Earhart lived in Denison House on Tyler Street, serving immigrant families any way she could. Many of them were struggling under new anti-immigration policies. Exhausted by floods of refugees pouring into the country from troubled nations around the world, Congress and the White House had set quotas restricting who could come in and from where. It wasn't an accident that these quotas favored white Christian immigrants from Northern and Western Europe, while making entry difficult, if not impossible, for Italians and Mexicans, Russians and Poles, Chinese and Japanese. The undesirables, the press sometimes called them. The quota law, as it was informally known, broke up families, preventing wives and children who were from the undesired lands from joining husbands and fathers in America. And the law also helped turn immigrant smuggling into a big business. Desperate people paid $500 at times for a long-shot chance of getting to America, a chance that often didn't pan out. In her position at Denison House, Earhart surely heard these stories, getting a snapshot of America that most never saw. She organized evening English classes for immigrant men and women. 
She often followed up on their lives personally, making visits to their apartments in the South End and sharing home-cooked meals around their tables. She was by turns a teacher, a counselor, and even a nurse, driving sick children to the hospital. And always, she was writing, taking notes. I shall try to keep my contact with the women who have come to class, Earhart wrote in one such note. Mrs. S. and her drunken husband. Mrs. F.'s struggle to get her husband here. Mrs. Z.'s to get her papers in the face of odds. All are problems that are hard to relinquish after a year's friendship. The original Denison House was located at 93 Tyler Street, a red brick row house across from the old Josiah Quincy School. It quickly outgrew that space, and the adjoining house was added on. By the 1920s, it occupied five row houses with a shared entrance at number 93. It was during this era that Amelia Earhart came to Denison House. She describes her experience there in her book, The Fun of It. The place where I found myself was Denison House, Boston's second oldest social center. It stood in a little island of residences, surrounded by warehouses and other buildings, in a lower corner of town. The island had at one time been a rather nice section, and many of the tenements, homes of well-to-do people. The stone fronts of some of the houses, the high ceilings and curving banisters inside, were mute reminders of a more glorious past. The people I met through Denison House were as interesting as any I have ever known. The neighborhood was mostly Syrian and Chinese, with a few Italians and Irish mixed in. I had never been privileged to know much about how people other than Americans lived. Now I discovered manners and modes very different from those which I was familiar. Under my very nose, Oriental ideas and the homegrown variety were trying to get along together. The first time I saw, sitting on a modern gas stove, one of the native clay cooking dishes used for centuries by the Syrians, I felt I was seeing tangible evidence of the blending process. There was always plenty of work to be done at Denison House, for there were classes and game periods of all kinds for boys and girls. Besides these, English writing and reading were taught to those ambitious mothers and fathers who knew only their native tongue and came to learn a new one. This instruction, by the way, is very different from ordinary classes where pupils know the language. Did you ever stop to think how explanations could be made if you did not know any of the words the teacher was using? Of course, she would have to pantomime what she was saying. In the beginning, that is exactly what is done in these classes. For instance, to teach door, the instructor has to go to a door and point it out. To interpret, I open the door, she must go through the whole motion with the class repeating the words. And so on through the sign language until pupils learn enough to take up the alphabet. In the comments on an article about Denison House posted by the Social Welfare History Project of Virginia Commonwealth University, Jane Zanino Pepe shared the following My mother, Isabel Tawa, was the daughter of Syrian immigrants. She spent most of her free time at Denison House as a child. She always spoke fondly of her teacher, Amelia Earhart. My mother so enjoyed spending time with Amelia, who brought such excitement to the children she mentored. Amelia would bring out the innate creativity in which their eager young minds just flourished. She taught many things, 
and left a lasting impression on the little Syrian girl growing up in the south end of Boston. Like most of us, Amelia kept up with her hobby. Some people podcast, some people fly. In her own words, In the midst of all these activities at Denison House, not much time was left for flying. However, I did join a chapter of the National Aeronautic Association there and was ultimately made vice president. And I did tuck into the busy Denison House days everything I possibly could that had something to do with my favorite hobby. I knew some of the local flyers. I went up whenever I had the opportunity. I was busy, too, with Miss Ruth Nichols of Rye and trying to work out some means of organizing the women in the fold. The National Playground Association asked me to be on the Boston Committee to judge in a model airplane tournament they were sponsoring at the time. And since this combined my two greatest interests, aviation and social work, in an unusual way, I was very glad to serve. None of this was what you could call important, except to me. It was sheer fun. And it did keep me in touch with flying. It usually works out that if one follows where an interest leads, the knowledge or contacts somehow or other will be found useful sometime. To the person who has learned to swim well comes the opportunity to rescue a drowning man. If I hadn't cared enough to become a member of the aviation group in Boston, there wouldn't have been a friendship crossing for me. After Charles Lindbergh's solo flight across the Atlantic in 1927, a woman named Amy Guest was intrigued by the possibility of becoming the first woman to fly or be flown across the Atlantic Ocean. After deciding that the trip was too perilous for her to undertake, she offered to sponsor the project for another woman. After hearing of the plan, publisher and publicist George Putnam and Captain Hilton Rayleigh were determined to produce the spectacle. Rayleigh describes how Amelia Earhart became involved in a 1938 piece for the San Francisco Chronicle. I learned that Mrs. Frederick E. Guest of London and New York, whose husband had been Secretary of State for Air in Lloyd George's cabinet, was the mysterious sponsor who had planned to be the first of her sex to fly the Atlantic. Her family, said Mr. Lehman, was much concerned. Soon, it was agreed that if I could find the right sort of girl to take her place, Mrs. Guest would yield. On the merest hunch, when I returned to Boston, I telephoned my friend Rear Admiral Reginald K. Belknap, retired. Why, yes, said he. I know a young social worker who flies. I'm not sure how many hours she's had, but I do know that she's deeply interested in aviation and a thoroughly fine person. Call Denison House and ask for Amelia Earhart. By this time, Amelia had a high profile in Boston due to her work at Denison Airport, described in her biography by Doris Rich. When her old friend and mentor Bert Kinner was looking for a sales outlet for his planes, one of the people he met in California was Harold T. Denison of Quincy, Massachusetts, who was developing a commercial airport on land near the present-day Naval Reserve Air Base at Squantum. At Kinner's suggestion, Denison asked Amelia to become both Kinner's sales representative at Denison Airport and one of its stockholders. She accepted both offers and somehow scraped up the money for a few shares of stock. In a newspaper report on the airport's official opening, July 2, 1927, Amelia is described as a director of Denison Corporation, the only woman on the flying staff, as well as a social worker at Denison House, 
The quiet, reserved woman Bert Kinner had picked to demonstrate his plane became an articulate, persuasive salesperson at the airport. Kinner flew there from Los Angeles the first week in September, in a new plane he had just built, one with five cylinders. He left the plane at Denison, with Amelia as his demonstrator sales representative. During her time at the airport, Amelia could be seen zipping around over Boston and dropping flyers and pamphlets promoting Denison House programs and events. From her personality, to her flight experience, to her all-American good looks, Rayleigh knew immediately upon meeting her that this was the woman for the job. However, he pointedly did not pressure her and made her aware of the risks. Rayleigh continues, Some weeks after Mrs. Guest had retired in Amelia's favor, Julie, my wife, in daily touch with our secret preparations, broached the subject and woman to woman urged her to back out if she felt the slightest degree uneasy. Her reply was characteristic. No, this is the way I look at it. My family's insured. There's only myself to think about. And when a great adventure is offered you, you don't refuse it, that's all. As a rule, when gatecrashers are caught in the act, they are thrown out, as well as they deserve to be. George and I enjoyed the unique experience of being asked instead to manage the performance and cast a new leading lady. Indeed, at Mrs. Guest's request, GP agreed to act as the producer, to step into the spotlight when the curtain rose as the backer of the flight. It was at Amelia's request primarily that I agreed to see her through the rumpus in Europe. Earhart accompanied pilot Wilmer Stoltz and co-pilot mechanic Lewis Gordon on the flight, mostly as a passenger, but with the added duty of keeping the flight log. They flew in a Fokker F-7B-3M seaplane, with attached pontoons known as Friendship. The first leg of the journey took them from East Boston to Newfoundland. Boston Globe magazine describes that ominous beginning. It took five tries for the plane to get off the water, too heavy at five tons. To make it, the crew had to shed not only gas and gear, but backup pilot Lou Gower. Without his 150 pounds on board, the Friendship finally hit 50 miles an hour, enough speed to get airborne and rose above the harbor with the sun. Almost immediately, the cabin door failed, bursting open. Gordon and Earhart, caught off guard, nearly fell out of the door and into the sea. They finally managed to secure the busted door with string. Not ideal, but there was nothing they could do to overcome the problems they faced once they made their scheduled stop the next day in Trepassey, Newfoundland, a colorless outpost on a gray ocean. They landed there to refuel and spend one night, but ended up staying two weeks, grounded by the weight of the heavy friendship and socked in by the weather. The team departed from Trepassey Harbor, Newfoundland on June 17, 1928, and landed near Burryport, South Wales, about a half mile off the coast, exactly 20 hours and 40 minutes later. Stoltz told a reporter from the Lanelli Mercury, We encountered fog almost all the way, and there was considerable rain as well. Most of the way I was flying blind because of the fog and rain. We had no idea where we were as we had not seen Ireland. We landed here in South Wales because we were short of fuel. When interviewed after landing, Earhart said, Schultz did all the flying. Had to. I was just baggage, like a sack of potatoes. She added, Maybe someday I'll try it alone. The New York Times described her reception. 
The arrival of the Friendship was the greatest event this remote district had had since the end of World War II when the town's boys came home. Miss Earhart was nearly crushed by the anxiety of the crowd of men, women, and children to touch the hem of her flying suit, get her autograph on a slip of paper, wring her hand, and congratulate her upon her triumphant passage over the Atlantic. The High Sheriff of Carmarthenshire, who had rode out to greet her, the town's three policemen, and a couple of friends had to form a ring with locked arms about the latest popular heroine and fight their way a hundred yards from the shore to the office of the local zinc works, where they found shelter behind locked doors. You must remember, the local police chief said apologetically, that our people never saw anything to compare with this. I advise you to remain here until we get extra police. The Friendship's crew were marooned within the walls of the Frickers Metal Company an hour and a half before police reinforcements arrived and cleared away for the two motor cars to take them to a distant hotel, where rest, food, and sleep could be obtained after their arduous journey. It's worth noting that for this historic feat, which could not have happened without her, the pilot earned $20,000, the mechanic was paid $5,000, and Earhart was offered nothing. You might say that she was paid an exposure, but that's a debatable currency at best. She received a welcome in Boston worthy of any Super Bowl or World Series victory. 250,000 people turned out to greet her, and 2,000 social workers attended a reception at the Copley Plaza. From that point forward, Amelia Earhart embraced her future in aviation, and we think you know how that story goes. And what became of Denison House? Boston City Archives tells us, In 1941, the Settlement House released a statement citing neighborhood depopulation as a reason for closing the house. But with better times during the past two years, more people moved, more homes were torn down, and we began to have fewer numbers. The 1940 census showed that 1,800 people had moved away from this neighborhood. In the last 10 years, a recent study also showed that more than two-fifths of our members live outside this area, where they could now use other agencies. That one half of our neighborhood members do use other neighborhood organizations for similar services. South End residents who used the Settlement House's services were directed to other local social welfare agencies, including the South End House, the Chinese Mission, and the Salvation Army. So many of our neighbors, as well as friends, are interested to know what the future of Denison House is to be and where. The area recommended by the Project Committee is in parts of Roxbury and Dorchester, where we hope to learn from the people how we can be of greatest service, and if they wish, to develop with them the best program possible. In the history of our country, there has never been a time when the need for local neighborhood solidarity has been so evident. We want Denison House to carry on its fine old traditions, alive to new ideas and modern trends, to give our neighbors a service that belongs truly to them and to their time. Experience has shown that, as a neighborhood develops its own resources for leadership and local improvement, the individual becomes a better and more valuable citizen. We shall be pleased to have friends and neighbors visit us at a future date, and for any who find themselves moving in our direction to join us. 
1942, Denison House relocated to Dorchester, where it occupied several buildings before moving into the former Howard Avenue School in 1949. In 1965, it merged with Little House, Dorchester House, and the Columbia Point Youth Center to form the Federated Dorchester Neighborhood Houses, which became college-bound Dorchester in 2010. The original site on Tyler Street, now occupied by apartment buildings, is a stop on the Chinatown South Cove Walk of the Boston Women's Heritage Trail. To learn more about Amelia Earhart's time in Boston, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 094. We'll have a link to one of Amelia Earhart's autobiographies, as well as the Doris Rich biography with information about her time at Denison Airport. We'll also have links to articles about the Friendship Crossing from the New York Times and San Francisco Chronicle. Plus, we'll link to original documents about Denison House and South End House and the article from Boston Globe magazine that we quoted from. We'll also include photos of Amelia Earhart's triumphant return to Boston after the Friendship Flight. And, of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week to talk about the centennial of the deadly 1918 flu outbreak in Boston. 